If you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 9. This morning, we'll be picking up in verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30, as we continue our study here through the Word of God. So glad to be here with you, and welcome to those of you in the fellowship hall today. Glad that you're here, those out in the courtyard, and of course, those in different parts of the country and even around the world. We're blessed that you could be here with us today at Calvary Chapel. Beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they all stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful this morning that whoever believes on you will not be put to shame. And Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who have yet to exercise faith in believing in the finished work of Christ, that, Lord, there would be genuine conversions that would happen here today, Lord. Pray as the word goes forth that your spirit would do what you promised that he would do, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 9, we've been considering together God's sovereign purpose, and plan for the nation of Israel. However, there were those who would read Paul's epistle and they would suggest that if all that Paul had written was true, then it appeared that the promises that God made to Israel in the past would no longer be fulfilled. With so many of the Jews rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, what future could they have if Paul was accurate in his assessment? Paul's response to that question, was God done with the Jewish people, was to point out that God has always sovereignly been in control of the situation. And he wasn't taken by surprise by the nation's rebellion or their rejection of his one and only son. And to prove this point concerning God's sovereignty, Paul launched into a history lesson wherein he revealed God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. First of all, he looked at Abraham and Sarah and how that they wavered in their faith and they tried to present their own plan to God in the form of Ishmael. But God didn't receive the work of their flesh in fact, he chose Isaac over Ishmael because that was God's plan. Even though they had failed, God was still in control. Then the apostle reminded his readers of how that Isaac attempted to do something similar in that he tried to give the blessing to his older son Esau when the Lord actually had selected before they were born that Jacob, the younger son, was to receive the blessing. 
God's purpose would come to pass. He sovereignly selected Jacob instead of his older brother Esau because that was God's plan. Then Paul looked back at the nation of Israel, how at one time they were in bondage in Egypt and the Pharaoh was unwilling to let the people go. And yet once again, God's plan came to pass in that Moses triumphed over Pharaoh because God is in control. Finally, there was the example given to us of the potter with the clay. And Paul cited how that the potter has power and sovereignty over the clay to make it what it is that he desires to make it. He has a design in mind, and as he puts his hands upon the clay, he forms and shapes it, and in the same way, the Lord is the potter, and the nation of Israel was the clay. The emphasis, again, being that God is in control. Folks, can I just say to you this morning that I am grateful that God is in control of all things. He's in control of my life. I don't always know what it is that he's up to or what it is that he's shaping or how it is he's gonna use this or exactly where he's leading me, but I'm confident that he's in control and he knows exactly what he's doing. Now in verse 30, Paul continues this line of reasoning about God's plan for the Jewish people that he wasn't done with them. And in verse 30, he asks a rhetorical question and then he answers the question that he asks by drawing another comparison and contrast, this time between the Jews and the Gentiles. Look at what it says. Here's the question. What shall we say then? That is to everything that I've just presented to you concerning the sovereignty of God and his divine election. What, what are we gonna say to all of that? And here's what he says. That the Gentiles, that is those who aren't Jews, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. One group did not pursue it, and they found it. Another group was pursuing it and did not receive it. What does Paul refer to here? He's referring to the righteousness of faith versus the law of righteousness. Two separate things. The Gentiles, first of all, did not pursue righteousness, but they attained it. How? He answers the question. I love this. The answer is, well, why did that happen in verse 32? And then he gives us the answer. He says, here's the reason. Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by the works of the law, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. The Gentiles, when they learned of what Jesus had done for them, how that Jesus had died for their sins, how that Jesus had risen again from the dead, how that salvation was a gift of God's grace, not to be earned, but to be received. When they heard that, they responded in faith to the message of the gospel and guess what they received? What they attained, the righteousness that comes through faith. They received it. They realized salvation cannot be earned. But on the other hand, the Jews, they sought to earn their salvation by their works, by the keeping of the law. But the law couldn't make them righteous. The law can never make us righteous. The law simply points out that I am 
unrighteous. I look at the law and I realized I've broken it. But when I realize that I've broken it, it drives me to the Savior who is able to save me. But sadly, the Jews rejected Jesus. The Bible says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They did not believe in him. In fact, it says here, they actually stumbled over him. To the Gentiles, Jesus was a rock that they could build their lives upon. But to the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling stone. Paul then quotes a combination of Old Testament passages here from Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah 28 in verse 33. He says, as it is written, he's referring to the Old Testament, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. When Jesus came, the Jews were offended at Jesus, did not believe in Jesus, but still whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Folks, listen carefully. There are plenty of people today in this world who falsely assume that they are going to heaven because they are good people. And their standard of goodness is one that they have developed when comparing themselves perhaps to other people who, in their opinion, are not good. They would never think for a moment that they would be going to hell or on the receiving end of God's judgment because they're good people. At the same time, many of those same people don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They might say he's one of many ways. And the sad thing is, those same people live with a false sense of security. They are not saved. They are not on their way to heaven. Our goodness could never be good enough. Our righteousness through our attempts to be kind to people or to do good deeds or attending a Christmas service or Easter or putting together a shoebox for children or whatever it is that we do could never save us because you attended a religious school or you went through a program or you were born an American. Not one of those things can save your soul from eternal separation from God. There is only one thing, one person who can save our soul and that's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him exclusively. He's the only way. But to many people, including the Jews, they found that to be offensive. What about you here today? Are you living with a false sense of security? If today were your last day on this earth, do you know that you would be going to heaven? Do you have that assurance that when you take your last breath here, You'll take your first breath in heaven and you will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Do you know for certain to be absent from your body is to be immediately present with the Lord? Do you have that assurance? Friend, you can. The Bible says these things we've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. Romans chapter nine, that teaches us about divine election and the sovereignty of God with Israel. But now, as we move from chapter 9, looking at God's past dealing with the nation of Israel, we move into chapter 10, and we're talking now about God's 
present relationship to the nation of Israel, and we learn about human responsibility and free will. At least five times in this chapter, Paul alludes to the free will of man, the responsibility of man in making a decision for or against God. Again, let me state this clearly. We believe in the sovereignty of God, the predestination, election. We believe that because the Bible teaches it, but we also believe that man has a free will and needs to exercise his responsibility. Chapter nine, clearly the election, it's stated. Chapter 10, keep reading the free will of man. The Bible teaches both. It is a paradox to you and me, but not in heaven, but to us, it's a paradox, but it's perfectly clear in heaven. So we teach what the Bible says. God is sovereign and man has a responsibility. Someone was asked one time, how do you reconcile those two things? You don't need to reconcile friends. They're friends. The Bible teaches both and thus we teach both. Well, chapter 10 begins with Paul's heartfelt prayer for his people. Look at verse one, chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You may recall that at the beginning of Romans 9, that Paul mentioned the burden that he had for his people. In fact, He said that his conscience was bearing him witness that he had great sorrow and continual grief in his heart for the Jews. In fact, he said, if it were possible, he wished that he himself could be cut off or the word is accursed, separated from God so that his people could be saved. He had a burden for the people. And he states it a second time here in the 10th chapter saying that it was his heartfelt desire and prayer that Israel would be saved. He didn't just have a desire to see them saved. He prayed for them to be saved. He interceded for them. He pleaded with God that they would come to salvation. Folks, it's one thing to know people who are not saved and have a desire. I, you know, I would hope someday that they would you know, get saved. It's quite another thing to get on your knees personally and pray for their salvation on a regular basis. Folks, we need to be praying for the lost. That's what we need to be doing. Praying for people who aren't saved. Praying for people who are going to hell. You know people, I know people who are not ready to meet the Lord. And we need to pray for them that they would be saved. Listen, listen carefully. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for me. And I am eternally grateful for those prayers that have been answered. And I give God all the praise and all the glory. But do you pray for people? You have a desire for people to get saved? That's wonderful. Let it lead you to action and intercession and prayer. Think about this. Every time Paul went into a city to minister, remember the first place he went? A synagogue. Who hangs out in synagogues? Jews. 
And why, why speak to them? Because Paul had a heart for them. And he would pull from the Old Testament scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And they would listen. And a lot of times they'd kick him out. And then he'd go to the Gentiles and he'd set up a church and establish it with them. But he, he always had a heart for them. And he always was longing to see them saved. The church needs to be praying for people who are lost. Who are you praying for this morning? Paul then gives a description and a diagnosis of their problem. And he knew this problem well because it was the same problem he had. He knew all about these people because he was just like them before he was converted. And so he knew how to pray and he knew what they were like. But here's the problem. This is why they rejected Jesus. Notice their reasons. In verse one, he says, I bear them witness. Here's what they have. They do have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Oh, they're zealous. That's for sure. They're zealous for religion, but their knowledge is incomplete. The Jewish people were extremely zealous as it relates to religious practice and tradition. Following their Babylonian captivity, when they were brought back into the land of Israel, they were determined never to be swept up again in idolatry, in serving other gods. And so they had sought to keep the law. They had developed a certain code and traditions that they were zealous to keep. The problem was they felt that that was their standard of righteousness. Zeal can be a good thing, but zeal without knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Without knowledge means they didn't have a complete understanding. What they knew was insufficient, and it led them astray from attaining a means of salvation that was available only through Christ. They had zeal. They were religious, and they were so religious. Let me just give you one example Jesus, you remember at one point, he exhorted the religious leaders and he said, you know, you're so dedicated that you tithe out of your spices. You probably have a spice cabinet at home with spices. And they had spices and they were so committed to not breaking any, they would give a few spices to the Lord. You know, how many, a tenth of their spices to the Lord and the rest they would keep for themselves. It was just that's ridiculous, but we just, we're serious about this. They were so meticulous that if a Pharisee was walking down the street and it just so happened that a gnat flew into his mouth, a gnat had blood in it, not very much, but enough that you violated it. So these guys, it was not uncommon to see them ah, gagging on the side of the road to make sure they can extract the blood from that gnat lest they break God's law. You think, just eat it. Just eat it. Don't worry about it, you know? But that's how meticulous they were. So religious, so committed to these, these things, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They had a standard of righteousness. And Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. That must've come as a shock to them. But it was all outward. There was zeal for religion, but no knowledge of real righteousness that comes by faith. And this zeal without knowledge led them to be willfully ignorant of God's righteousness. That's what it says in verse three. They're ignorant of God's righteousness and... They seek to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they're ignorant of it, which has led them to then establish their own form of righteousness, 
which in turn, if you boil it all down, they haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. In other words, I've established my own religious practice. This is the way I'm gonna live. Don't judge me. This is, how, this is what I think. Not what God says necessarily, but what I think. I can't tell you how many people that I run into on a regular basis who are just like that. They have established their own form of righteousness, their own road, their own path they've carved out for themselves that they think is gonna lead to heaven, but it's not leading to heaven. Here's the thing. They pull from all different practices and religious things. I'll take a little bit of Hinduism. I'll take a little bit of Buddhism. I'll take a little bit of, uh, you know, whatever else I want to take. And then I'll sprinkle a little Jesus on it and I'll stir it up. And I'll, this is what I have. It's unacceptable to God. It's your own form of righteousness. It's your own religious establishment that you've created that God doesn't acknowledge. Listen, friend, if you and me could get to heaven any other way through our goodness, through our own established righteousness, then Jesus Christ died in vain. There is no reason for him to bleed on our behalf and die and resurrect if you and me could get there somehow on our own. The fact is we can't. And that's why he came. There are those who assume that they're going to heaven because they are spiritual. Those individuals have established their own righteousness. There are those who think that they're going to heaven because they go to church. Although it's wonderful to go to church, it doesn't save you. There are those that assume that they are going to heaven because of this particular nonprofit organization they're involved with and they're sending. Listen, none of those things save you and me. There is a righteousness which is according to God and a righteousness that is according to man. One is acceptable and the other isn't. The ignorance of God's righteousness led them to establishing their own personal definition and practice of righteousness. But in reality, they had not submitted to the righteousness of God. And what is the righteousness that's available? Look at verse four, please. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? For, for who? To everybody who what? Believes. Believes. Not works for, not earns, not tries to be worthy of, but simply believes. Listen, Jesus Christ, he said, I didn't come to break the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he did. He fulfilled it in his life, first of all, because he lived a sinless, perfect life. Thus, he fulfilled the law. And not only did he fulfill the law in his life, but he also fulfilled the demands of the law in his death. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he died in our place, accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. He fulfilled the law. By faith, I trust in what he did for me on the cross. And now, by faith, I am in him, the one who fulfilled the law. The end of the law for righteousness is to everyone who believes. He fulfilled the requirements on my behalf. And by believing in what he did, I am now declared righteous in the sight of God. Oh, not because of John Randall's righteousness. He doesn't have any. It's the righteousness of Jesus that has been imparted to me. What he did for me on my behalf. 
Paul presents another contrast between the law of righteousness and the righteousness of faith, and he does so by masterfully stringing together, once again, a series of Old Testament passages to prove his point. The reason why he goes back to the Old Testament is because that's what they believed in. He used their own scriptures to confound them. You can't argue with what you say you believe if it's very clear within the text. And so he goes back to the Old Testament, and the first thing he does, he quotes in verse 5, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, which were the words of Moses. And so he says, let's, let's look at the law for a second. Let's talk about the law of righteousness, first of all. What did Moses say about the law of righteousness? Here's what he said. In Leviticus 18, it says, the man who does these things or does those things concerning the law shall live by them. If you're going to seek to be righteous according to the law, then you're going to have to live by the law. And which means you're going to have to keep the law. Listen, you can try it. You're going to have to keep the law perfectly 100% of the time. You're going to have to be perfect to, to be right. You, you can try. It's impossible. But if you want to do that, go ahead. If you're establishing your own righteousness, in essence, what you're saying is, I gotta, I'm, gonna li- I'm living a perfect life. Now, you might not think that in your mind. I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that. Well, listen, if you're thinking that you've established your own righteousness and the laws that you've kind of put in place, that's basically what you're doing. It's impossible. But if you're going to live by the law, you could try it, but you'll fail. That's what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, for whoever shall keep the whole law, but stumble in one point is guilty of the whole law. Do you understand what that means? The person that says, I live by the Ten Commandments. Have you ever broken one? Well, once, I think, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I've, I've pretty much, no, you have. Then guess what that means? You've broken the whole law. It's all tied together. You are guilty. One sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. One. And we've all committed a lot more than one. So the person that says, I'm going to live by the law, what does the law say? The law says you got to keep it perfectly. And if you can't do that, guess what? You're out. You're not getting in. You can't do it. But that's, that's what the law says. Oh, but now he goes back to the Old Testament again, and he says, but this is what faith says. This is what the law says. Moses represents the law. This is what he said. Well, let's see what faith says. What does faith speak? It says, if you look at the very next verse, he's now quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, another Old Testament passage. This is, this is the righteousness of faith, verse 6, speaks this way. This is what Moses said. This is what the righteousness of faith says. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse eight, what does it say? Here's what faith says. The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. The law says, good luck, try it out, see how far you get. It's, it's built in failure. We can't do it. Where faith says, you don't have to go to the heights of heaven to try to figure this out. You don't have to go to the depths of the abyss. It's near you. In other words, it's accessible. Well, how near is it? Your mouth, your heart, it's right there. It's accessible. It's available to you. You don't have to try to earn it. You don't have to try to 
conquer something in order to achieve it. It's right there. It's near you. You don't have to go to heaven to try to find Christ or into the world of the dead, the abyss. He's near. In other words, the gospel of Christ, this word of faith is available. It's accessible. The sinner doesn't need to perform some difficult work in order to be saved. What he has to do, what she has to do is simply this. Are you ready for this? Trust what Christ did. Believe it. That's what faith says. Faith says, believe it. The law says, keep it. Try it. See if you can make it. I can't. By the way, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. It's me. It's not you. It's me. I can't, I can't keep it. But faith says, believe it. And you can receive it. The law says, try and earn it. You'll fail. Faith says, believe it. It's yours. It's on your lips. It's on your heart. Notice what the next verse says. It ties it in perfectly. Verse nine, that if, remember it's near your, it's your mouth and your heart. If, that if, pause there, if. What does if imply? I'll tell you what it implies. It implies free will. It implies a choice. If, you can choose. You don't have to. If, this is the human responsibility part right here. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, look at the promise. You will be saved. For with the heart, it speaks not just of the, of the organ in your body that's pumping your blood. It's talking about the emotions, the will, when it speaks of the heart. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And the scripture says, whoever, here it is again, believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament here. Whoever believes will be saved. Whoever confesses, the word confess, it means to say the same and so to agree in one statement. It means, folks, to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or a person. And in this context, the person of Christ. It's a statement of identification, confidence, trust. Outward confession comes from inward conviction. The word for confess has this strong legal connotation to it. It's a judicial term. And the word indicates the binding and public declaration which settles a relationship with legal force. A person can confess to a charge in court and thus openly acknowledge their guilt. They're guilty. The evidence is in. Here it is. What do you say? Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Well, based upon that evidence, I am, I'm guilty. I confess it with my lips. I look at the sin in my life. I look at what the law says. I look at what God demands. And as I look at all of the evidence, I see what it says. Where does that bring me to? The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon me and I realize I'm guilty. I confess it. I agree with what you say. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. I can't save myself. I can't earn it. I have to receive it. I confess it, Lord. I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin. And when you confess with your lips. And then I also believe in my heart that Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again for me. The Bible says when I confess that and believe it, guess what happens? Salvation happens. I'm saved. I'm saved. 
I love that word. <laughs> I've been rescued and I needed rescuing. And so do you. Have you been saved? Are you trying to save yourself? Listen, if you're establishing your own righteousness, you're trying to save yourself. Do you, you know you can't save yourself, right? That's why the Savior came. You can't do it. But if you're trying, if you've established your own righteousness, you're the person that says, don't judge me. This is what I believe. You're entitled to believe what you want to believe. That's fine. You can think that if you want, but I don't believe that. Let me ask you this. What do you base those, those things that you say on? What, what's the foundation for what you're preaching? Your faith system. What do you base it on? Well, this is just what I think. All right. But what do you base it on? We're basing it on what God said. What God promised. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And this is the, the promises you will be saved. Salvation is so wonderful because it speaks of what Jesus has done for me in the past tense. I have, I was saved years ago. I was saved. He saved me, past tense. But you know something? I'm also being saved right now. He's saving me. He's preserving me. The Bible says to us who are being saved, Christ is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. I was saved. I'm being saved. And listen to this. I am going to be future tense saved. The Bible says we are being kept by the power of God unto salvation, which waits to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1. I was saved. I'm being saved. I am saved. He saved me. How, John? Did you earn it? Did you keep the law? What did you do to me? How did that happen? I just, I just believed in what Jesus did. And I still believe in what Jesus has done. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, verse 13. Whoever calls. You know something? Anybody here today, anybody watching this, listening, you can call anyone no matter who you are, no matter what sins you committed, no, no matter what you've been involved with, no matter what you've done, you can call. And here's the great thing about when you call on the Lord. Listen carefully, he answers. He answers. He doesn't say, for the Father, press one. <laughs> for Jesus, press two. For the Holy Spirit, three. Um, if you'd like to have salvation, press four, and we'll get back to you and Eight weeks from now. I mean, it doesn't, it's just, it just doesn't happen that way. The moment you call, he answers right then. Lines are always open. I was thinking about this particular passage as it relates to the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he was an old-time preacher. They called him the prince of preachers. Amazing. But he talks about his conversion. And it was a day when there was a snowstorm and he wandered into this church. I mean, snow was coming. It wasn't even the church that he attended, but it was snowing so hard that he just went into this church and sat in the back row. And while he was sitting in the back row, the pastor didn't even make it to the service. The snow was so bad. And so they looked around, who's gonna preach? And it fell to a deacon. And this guy wasn't the preacher. He wasn't the pastor, but they said, you gotta, you're the, it's you. So he got up there and the deacon started preaching and he had one text Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he just went on and he just kept repeating it. This person, he writes really eloquently and he's also very uh, 
humorous the way he writes about how this guy was preaching. You can read it on your own. I can't do it justice. But he's talking about it, and he said, the guy kept saying it, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And then he said, in the middle of the study, in the middle of the, of the message, Spurgeon sitting in the back row, the pastor pointed to him, and he said, hey, young man, you in the back, you look like a miserable youth. You need to call upon the name of the Lord, or you will continue in your misery. He said he was so convicted by the Holy Spirit, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And he was saved. I'm not going to be doing that today. You and the... You're like, is it me? No. Next to you. The other person. This section. No, he didn't say that. Whoever you are who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how do people call on the Lord? How can they call on the Lord? That's a really good question. Paul says in the very next verse, verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? That is, is written, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they haven't all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says the Lord to the Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Pope asked some really important questions here. They, they don't believe. And how can they if they haven't heard? And how are they gonna hear if somebody doesn't preach to them? And how are they gonna be preached to if somebody isn't sent to them? Guys, listen. Did you know the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended? Do you know, you know what it's called? The Great Commission. Not the Great Suggestion. The Great Commission. You know what the Great Commission is? To go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. To tell people how to get saved. To tell people that Jesus died, Jesus rose. That was the last thing that he said to us, the church. There are people that you work with that are not saved. And you might be one of those people, Lord, I just pray. Send somebody to this guy's cubicle right here next to me <laughs> so that he can call upon you and be saved. Let's pray you'd send someone, Lord, whoever, whoever they are. Lord, here am I, send someone else. Just right now, just. <laughs> it's you. You're the answer to your prayers. Lord, I just pray for this campus. There's a lot of atheism around here and people need Jesus. And Lord, I just pray you just bring Christians to this campus. Bold Christians, Lord, just to share. Uh, that's you. That's you. That's me. How are they going to hear unless you tell them? How are they going to know and believe if they haven't heard? It's our job. That, listen, that job of preaching the gospel outside of these walls, that's not left to the pastors. That's to the people, and myself included. When you leave these walls, you enter into the mission field. Ah, you don't even have to go across the sea or across to another continent. You can go across the street. You can go next door. Lord, send somebody to my neighbor. They just need you, Lord. They party a lot over there and so noisy and just, they need you, Lord. Send somebody, maybe on the other side of their house, not me on this side, but maybe 
someone, you know, what? Man, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are banging on doors consistently. Look at what they're willing to do for a lie. What are we willing to do for the truth? I see people set up on the beach with their signs. You walk down Irvine Spectrum, they're everywhere. How do they get, the, how do they get to do that? Why are we doing that? How are they going to hear? Faith to believe comes by what? Hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. Maybe you're saying, ah, oh, that's a lot of pressure, Pastor John. I'm not really like good at talking to people and I'm a little nervous about what they might say. And I don't feel like I'm, you know, totally theologically dialed in. You know, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I'm a little scared. What should I do? It's not our job to save people. It's our job to present the message of how to be saved. The Lord saves people. I, we just present it. We just present the message and we let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. Listen, we just had a service one service ago. First service. I presented the gospel like I'm doing here today and I will wrap it up with this. And no one came forward, no one raised their hand. And sometimes people think, oh, Pastor John, I'm sorry. I feel bad for you. It's okay, it's all right. <laughs> Maybe next time, it's all right. <laughs> they feel bad for me. Don't feel bad for me. It's not my job to save people. It's my job to present it. I don't feel bad. I mean, I would love it if non-believers are here today and you respond to the gospel. All of heaven rejoices but I can't save you. Jesus is the savior, but I can tell you how to get saved. And if you respond, if you confess with your lips and you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. It's not your job to save people. It's your job to present the message of how to be saved. Finally, in verse 18, I say, they haven't heard. Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. He quotes from Psalm 19 there. Verse 19, but I, say, but I say, did Israel know? Didn't they know? First Moses said, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. Quoting from Deuteronomy 32. But verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me, quoting from Isaiah 65. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Here, Paul strings together a series of Old Testament passages to prove his point as it related to the Jewish people at the present time. Oh, oh they've had opportunity to hear. And, and the message has gone out. And God's used other nations to provoke them to come back. And God is still working with them, even at the present time. And his purpose will ultimately be fulfilled. God's not done with the nation. He's had a plan for them in the past. He has a plan for them that he's working together at the present. And he has a plan for them in the future that we'll see in Romans Chapter 11. 
when you compare the law of righteousness and the righteousness of faith, the law of righteousness says it's only for the Jew. But faith's righteousness says it's for everyone. The law of righteousness is based on your works. But faith's righteousness comes by faith alone. The law of righteousness is self-righteousness, where faith's righteousness is God's righteousness imparted to us. The law of righteousness, it can't save you. The righteousness of faith brings salvation. The law of righteousness, obey the Lord. The righteousness of faith, call on the Lord. The law of righteousness leads to pride. Where the righteousness of faith glorifies God. Folks, which righteousness are you standing in today? Your own? Or Christ's righteousness? There is one that is acceptable to God and one that is not. Christ's righteousness is available to whoever will call upon the name of the Lord and believe. And if you haven't done that yet, friend, don't let another day go by because you don't know if you have another day. Now is the day of salvation. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made the way of salvation available to us. Lord, religion says do your best and try to make it on your own, whereas Christianity says God sent his best to reach us where we are to save us. And Lord, this morning I ask that if there are any who are unsaved, I pray that they would respond, that it's, it's accessible, it's right there, they're on the edge, Lord, that they would turn to you. And as eyes are closed and heads are bowed today, maybe something has resonated with you and, and you would say that, I need salvation. I've had zeal, but, but I've been without knowledge. I've established my own righteousness. I didn't know that there was a righteousness that comes by faith in the finished work of Christ. And if you want to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead then, and be saved, then this is, this is a day for you, an opportunity for you. I just want you to slip your hand up high and put it back down. I want to pray for you today. Anybody at all in this room, at the spirit of God, God bless you, bro. I see you. Once you put it up, you can put it back down. Anybody else this morning? Raise your hand up high. Pray for you today. Lift your hand up. And the Lord sees you. If you're in the fellowship hall, you can do it too. The Lord sees you. You can just raise your hand up high. Put it back down. If you're in the courtyard, by faith, by raising your hand, you're saying, I want to be saved. I, I want salvation today. Just call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved right now. God bless you. I see your hand. God bless. Anybody else today? 
the Spirit of God just convicting your heart, speaking to you. Let's raise your hand up high. Pray for you today. God loves you. He died to prove it. <laughs> he wants you to be in heaven for eternity. That's why he came. Anybody else today? Father, we thank you this morning for those who have, by faith, raised their hand and said, Lord, I believe. Save me. God, I pray you give them courage and boldness to stand for their faith in you. In a moment, the band's going to lead us in a song, just a chorus or so. And if you raised your hand this morning to respond to the message of the gospel, I'm going to ask you to do something that takes courage. I'm going to ask you to get to your feet and stand below this platform. And I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer, asking Jesus to be your savior. You might say, wait a second, why? Can't I just do it from here? You could. You could, and God will hear you. But you'll find in the gospels that everybody Jesus called, he called publicly, he called openly. He said, come and follow me. And they publicly declared their faith by following Jesus. And this is your opportunity. He hung publicly, publicly on that cross for your sin and mine. And now you have the privilege and the opportunity to stand for him and say, Lord, I, re I receive you today by faith. One of the pastors will be down here, down front, waiting for you. And when you get here, I'm gonna lead you in a word of prayer. So get up and come and we'll wait for you. And, and uh, when you get here, we're gonna pray for you. Just come on now. Let's encourage these guys. It's awesome, man. Praise God. Gary, you wanna come up? Anybody else this morning, if you're in the fellowship hall or you're in the courtyard and you want to walk through the doors, just walk through the door. And we want to pray with you as well. Maybe you're thinking, oh, that's so awkward and inconvenient. No, no it isn't. No, it isn't. Just come. And join these guys. Wait for a moment. Just get up and come if that's you. Just walk through the door. Awesome. Praise God. Anybody else? Just come now. Come and stand with these guys you need to receive Christ. All right. Men, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. And this is a prayer asking Jesus to be your savior. It's confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the Bible says as you pray, that he's going to hear you and he's going to answer you. So just repeat this prayer out loud after me, asking Christ to be your savior. Let's pray this. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus 
to die on the cross for my sins and rising again from the dead. Today, I turn from my sin and turn my life over to you. I ask you to help me with the power of your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me, for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys. Awesome. You guys stand with us this morning. Encourage these guys. So awesome. It's a huge step of faith and just so proud of you guys. It's amazing to see what God's going to do. So exciting. All these people who are here, we all took that step. We all stepped right where you are. And our lives have been radically changed. And this is just a new beginning for you guys. God's got his hand on your life. Today was a divine appointment. You're here not by accident, but on purpose. So we're excited for you. So cool. Yeah. Pastor Gary will share just a couple things with you guys before we dismiss. But the rest of you, may the Lord bless you. Can I encourage you today? Guys, as you leave this place, the Bible says how beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel of peace everywhere they go. There, there's, there's shoes that you need to put on. There's shoes. The, the gospel shoes. Bible says in Ephesians. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Why, why does it say the shoes? Because when you put the shoes on, it goes with you everywhere you go. So friend, put those shoes on this week and take the gospel where the Lord sends you and, and open your mouth and be the answer to your own prayer. God wants to use us. Nothing to be ashamed of. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation to everybody who believes. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. If you need prayer for anything today, There'll be pastors and leaders up front that would love to pray with you. If not, we look forward to seeing you in the week ahead. God bless you guys.